Thank you so much, everyone who served in ways seen and unseen this NYC. It's such a precious time to be together, isn't it? It's the middle of the week and Wednesday night, night three, we're going to open up some sensitive topics tonight. I trust we're going to do it lovingly. But I do want to flag that there may be some trigger points tonight. But you know you are well loved here by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Staff, faculty leaders are here to listen and care. So let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our great God and our Father in heaven. <clears throat> We pray that you will please free us from anything that will distract us from hearing you again tonight in your word. Father, may your word by your spirit do its powerful work inside of us. That we will listen and trust and love as you have loved us. Please do strengthen me to speak what's true from your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard the story of the boiling frog? The story goes, researchers found that when they put a frog in boiling water, the frog quickly jumped out. But when they put the frog in cold water and brought it to the boil, the frog, of course, doesn't notice and boils to its death. The change in temperature is so gradual, the frog doesn't realise it's boiling to death. I think this is a political cartoon, maybe. Anyway, could the frog be us? In what waters could we be gradually boiling, ignorant of the danger? I put it to you, brothers and sisters, the sexual culture of this world without God is our boiling water. One Christian commentator describes it as a sexular age. It's a pun. Secular means of the world, but sexular, still of the world, but where sexual identity trumps over all others. All identities are subsumed under one's sexual identity. But the world is utterly confused by sex, causing an ocean of pain and hurt. The NSSS National Student Safety Survey surveyed 43,000 university students from 39 Australian unis. And the results, in case you haven't heard from UOW, were shocking. One in six students experienced sexual harassment at uni since starting uni. That is unwanted sexual words or actions. One in 20 experienced sexual assault since starting uni. It's bad. And it, of course, it's not just universities. It's workplaces, it's sporting clubs, it's Hollywood, it's Parliament House, 
its churches and its homes. One in four women in Australia have experienced abuse by a current or previous intimate partner. Yes, men and women are abused, and we didn't need Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard to know that, but one in four women. It's a national shame. And some might ask, actually, how is this happening? Aren't we as society meant to be improving? Some political views we'll see, we'll say it. It's because the world loves darkness over God's light. You're familiar with John. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You've already seen in your seminar, John chapter 1. Light and darkness is a theme introduced there. And it continues in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. UOW is very, very aware of the problem and it's taking steps through education and a respect campaign and soon I've heard a mandatory online training uh, course for every student. Okay. A few years ago I attended a face-to-face training put on by the university for international students on Aussie sex and dating culture for international students and they split the men and the women and this is what they told the men. Men were taught first, is it legal? Are they over 16 years old? Is the sex safe? They won't get pregnant there won't be a baby. And is it consensual? I was there with a Christian friend and he was appalled. Where is the love? Where is the care? It's only self-protection. I'm really sorry, sisters. I don't know what uh, women were taught in their training. This is what the men got. Is this boyfriend or husband material. And that's just those who even elected to do the training. Others with minds fed to the brim on pornography or a warped reality. And I'm including Christians. And yes, of course, women have that content as well. But we are indeed lost and hurting each other And friends, if you've been hurt, we do grieve with you. I've walked closely in grief with those grieving and hurt. But you're safe here with us and we want to love you and care care for you. Now the online training course, New South Wales, new consent laws, 
they're good, but they're not game changers. They're like a drop in the ocean, aren't they? Last night I asked, where have we to turn individually when you hit rock bottom? Where have we to turn as a society when we hit rock bottom, if we're even there yet? Friends, we have the word of God and it is a good word and a powerful word in a dark world. It's a life-giving, life-changing world. So to point number one, divorce. And come with me to Luke 16, verse 18, where we, which we had read. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, why are we starting here with divorce? Well, by the end, I hope you will see why theologically. For now, we're here because this verse sits amongst the parables we're studying in Luke. But why have this single verse about divorce? It seems so random when Luke has written an orderly account, chapter 1, verse 3. So Luke must have a purpose for including this verse in this place on this topic. And I say it just to highlight our normal practice at Uni Bible Group, as you know, is to preach through books of the Bible as written, trusting that what God has said to us as we've received it is sufficient, rather than us thinking we know better, importing our, our scheme on top and picking and choosing. But again, why a teaching on divorce back then? Well, let's remember the contents, context. Jesus speaks to Jewish leaders, chapter 15, verse 1. They're grumbling that he eats with sinners. And they think, chapter 15, verse 7, they need no repentance. Because they've become so clever at lifting up their own laws over God's good laws chapter 16, verses 15 and 17, to 17. They've become adept at divorce. And to see their skill, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. You're going to want to bookmark this one for tonight. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. This says a little more from Jesus' teaching on this topic of divorce. Matthew 19 from verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read what he, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Can you see? They treat marriage like a legal hurdle. Say a man's head is turned from his wife to another. But he remembers, I'm married. And it's adultery if I sleep with her while I'm married. I better divorce my wife legally by certificate. Done. And then he goes and marries another to whom his head was turned. It's all legal and okay, yeah? No. Who wins? No one wins. Firstly, not the woman. She has no stability at all, even in a legal marriage. And certainly not the man, for by divorcing one woman flippantly for another, he's broken God's law by committing adultery, commandment number seven of, the, of Exodus 20, even though he's thinking he hasn't. Instead of it's adultery if I do it while married, Jesus says it's adultery when you marry for it, except for sexual immorality. And why the exception? Well, as one commentator says, divorce is sinful because it generates adultery, except where the adultery already exists. You don't make a person an adulterer if they already are one. Jesus is not endorsing divorce. Rather, he's challenging their use of the law to find a way around God's law. <laughs> now, that's what was happening then. Why is divorce still happening now? It's not the law of God we're concerned about. And sadly, it's for many varied and complex reasons. And again, I want to acknowledge some of us are going to be feeling the hurt right now. And if you need to take a drink or a break, that is okay, of course. I have family and dear, dear friends who've gone through divorce and I've seen how bitterly hard it is for everyone. Now, unfaithfulness can, of course, be a reason, just as it was then. And whilst divorce is a provision that Jesus allows, adultery doesn't necessitate divorce. It's got to happen. It's not a must. I know if friends and even pastors who have cheated on their wives but the marriage continues by God's grace may I even say that domestic abuse doesn't necessitate divorce though we might recoil in hearing that because it is not beyond the work of God's spirit to bring true change but Separation, including individual counselling, not couple, individual counselling and demonstrable change and repentance are all very necessary. At its heart, divorce is at least one party in the marriage deciding they can't keep the marriage promises they made. And it might be that the person who formally files for divorce isn't the first one to do that in case of abandonment or neglect. Now, a spouse might marry, two people might marry as a Christian 
both Christians, but then one becomes an unbeliever. And that may be a reason that could be given. And you might know many Christians. It seems in my church, mostly women whose husbands were Christian when married, but are not now. Could this be a ground for it? Well, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's go there. Keep Matthew 19. 1 Corinthians 7 is going to be another one to keep for tonight. We'll rack them up. But 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 12. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If an unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, don't divorce. But thirdly, unhappiness could be a reason cited for divorce. Listen to this government paper extract written 20 years ago. Some of you may not have been alive. While it reads, while recognising that divorce may be necessary for children and parents in extremely high conflict households, Amato and Booth express, I guess they're people, express concerns that the threshold for unhappiness at which parents abandon marriage is declining, leading to situations where people may be leaving marriages that are only moderately unhappy, depriving children of homes that still provide many benefits. You see there, leaving marriages that are only moderately unhappy. The wedding vows for better or for a little bit worse. That's not it. Now, I know these are sensitive matters, very sensitive. But how will future generations look on these generations of ours when we divorce for moderate unhappiness? As my dear friend who's been through a bit a bitter divorce says, if at all possible, work to keep your marriage. Now, you might be thinking at this point, it's better not to marry. Matthew 19. Let's go back there. I think you have a marker in that. Matthew 19, verse 10. You're not alone. Some of them heard Jesus clearly. Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Bing! They knew the weight of Jesus' words. Marriage is serious in God's sight. Marriage is God-made, not man-made. 
So why marry? At this point, let's have a discussion with the person next to you for a minute and a half. Why marry? Go for it. Three, two, one, and we're back. I hope that was edifying. We're going to press on. Point number two, marriage. Sub-point, good by design. Despite the world's confusion or man separating what God has joined in marriage, God's gift of sex and marriage is still good. Listen again to the words of Jesus, Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Take them in. And the Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They ask about divorce. Jesus answers about marriage. Marriage has three purposes. Firstly, children for God. Secondly, faithful sexual love, reflecting God's faithfulness to his promises. Remember night one. Thirdly, the good order of society, including pointing people to the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. It's a good gift for all whether Christian or non-Christian. It's not like I once heard a Christian friend say, I don't know why non-Christians bother getting married. There's no point. And I knew what he was getting at because he was talking about they don't understand the biblical view. But no, marriage is a good gift for all. You don't have to be Christian to enjoy its benefits in the left-hand column. Sure, Non-Christians won't understand the whole meaning in the right-hand column. Same-sex marriage cannot provide children, number one. Nor point people to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his people, number three. Because Jesus is the husband and his people as the wife are different as male and female. Can you see that marriage isn't man-made, but God-made? Matthew 19, verse 6. What God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage isn't a quaint custom that's now out of date or irrelevant by our high divorce rates. Jesus upholds this pre-fall scripture from Genesis 2 for how to live in his time and post-fall. Every marriage between one husband and one wife by mutual consent and promise is God-joined. God has also made sex to serve him and 
serve the marriage relationship. Firstly, sex serves God by producing children for God. Let's go back to our other reading, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 and verse 18. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God doesn't make him a companion or a lover to fix his loneliness. He makes a helper to help with what? Verse 15, to help with the work that God gave him to do and even in producing children as other fellow workers to do the work of God. Secondly, sex serves the relationship. There are no, they're no longer two but one, said Jesus. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 again. 1 Corinthians 7. I think you have your finger or bookmark in there too. You're very skilled if you're keeping all of your fingers in different pages. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they wrote. But, says Paul, the apostle, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should serve his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, sex, in marriage, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. He's talking about sex in marriage. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So sex is good in joining a husband and wife. Sex doesn't serve my needs. It serves my marriage's need, which I take it informs the types of sexual activity between a loving husband and loving wife to serve the other. Very different from how the world sees sex. The world sex, the world sex. The world says sex serves me, my needs. God says sex serves God and the marriage relationship. And that is God's good design. This should help us understand submission in the Bible. I believe you've looked at Ephesians 5, 24 and 25. You can write that down again. 
the wife submits to the husband's loving lead, his self-giving love, putting her needs first, not his own. For example, I could say to my wife, sit down, rest, and I will clean the kitchen. I will do the dishes. And to submit to that loving lead, she could say, okay, John. <laughs> you might like to ask questions about that later. <laughs> it's a good word from God by his design. Marriage and sex therein are God's good gifts. But earthly marriages face many troubles because of sin. So let's see Adam and Eve again. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 to chapter 3. So you'll need to open it in your Bibles because what's printed is not going to be enough for now. Genesis 24 into chapter 3. 2.24. Chapter 2, verse 24. Oh, we've heard this before from Jesus. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's go down to verse 16. This is the Lord God speaking. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Once there was no shame, now it's shame and blame. Shame in nakedness before God and each other and blame of God 
and the other. So part of God's curse is further conflict in verse 16. She wants his place as the head and he rules harshly. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 28. But marriage and marital sex are still very good. To say the opposite is actually the teaching of demons. 1 Timothy 4 from verses 1 to 5. So do take care if you hear that teaching, perhaps amongst some other denominational church priests. So, marriage and sex therein are good gifts of God. Why marry? To serve God. Why not marry? A better way to serve God. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, picking up from verse 9. We'll pick up from the end of what we've already read, Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, says Jesus, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Why all this talk about eunuchs? Eunuchs are men whose testicles have been removed to serve the king undividedly. In verse 12, some are made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. What? It's about singleness. The single person has the gift of singleness, regardless of how much you may like or dislike being single. Some might say, yeah, sure, singleness is like a gift, like bad clothes you never want to wear is a gift, that sort of gift. No. If you are single, you have that gift. It's not if you can accept the saying of your like of singleness, your desire. You have it now if you accept the words of Jesus to serve God with undivided devotion. You can also write down 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32 to 38. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32 to 38. Verse 38 describes it as better. We might return to this also. But whatever your situation, married, single, divorced, an engagement divorced, separated, our common service is of God. And after God, who is the focus? After God, for a married person, who would be the focus? Is it their spouse 
or perhaps if children come, children, or perhaps is it the wider church or somewhere amidst amidst all of this um, relationship web, one of the above. That's a good point for a discussion. After Jesus, who should be the married person's priority? Go for it. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, quick show of hands. Who says the spouse? Who says the child or children? Who says church family? And who says something else? Yay. Anyone want to shout out to something else? Cat? No? Did I miss here? All right. <laughs> Let's move on. Point number three. Children. We will come back to the answer. Children. It's been in there already somewhere. Children. Why have children? We're not going to discuss that. Let's do a quick survey of some answers. It's what you do, say some. Maybe not amongst your peers, not quite. I'm a little older. It's what you do, say some. There's some truth to that. A more open answer might be, I want kids for that need to feel loved. Or I wanted kids of my own, of my own flesh and blood, mine. Another might say, exactly, John, why kids? Like Michael and his wife decided not to have children, wary of what kids do to a marriage. I take it Michael isn't his real name. But Michael... There we go. This is Michael speaking. When you have children, the focus changes from the couple to the kids. Suddenly, everything is done for them, the kids. Well, I'm 27. I've used up a good portion of my life already. Why should I want to sacrifice for someone who's still got his whole life ahead of him? It's very honest, isn't it? It's an interesting view that life is like stored up in a container, a reservoir, and we must take care not to give too much of it away, not to expend it, even at 27 years old, years young. So are kids to fulfil a desire or to be delayed a bit or denied for me to live my best life now? Well, let's answer by considering why family psalm 127 verses 3 to 5 let's go to the psalms psalm 127 it's been wonderful to hear from some of the psalms read during our devotional time at meals perhaps you've reflected on one in reflection time israel's songbook Psalm 127 and verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man 
who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are from the Lord, just like marriage and sex. Children are another good gift of God's, the fruit of the woman's womb and a blessing to the man who has them. We've all been children once, and there is a God-givenness to each one of us in our very existence, born to a father and mother. We have not chosen it, but born by human decision or a husband's will under God. Childbirth is incredible. Incredible. Now, you might have gathered, if you're listening or looking closely, I'm a crier. I cried on my wedding day. I cried at the birth of my son. I cried at the birth of my daughter. I'm probably going to cry at the birth of our next child. My wife cried at none of them. (laughs) She is an incredible woman, despite her callous lack of tears. (laughs) Hi, Moana, if you're watching. (laughs) But the bond, the bond is amazing to see a newborn who knows to search out and crave his or her mother's milk. And that bond may indeed fulfil a woman. But the child never exists for that purpose. Sisters, for your fulfilment. Like a Christian I know who recently had a baby of her own by IVF, but with no father, to realise her dream of becoming a mother. I put it to you, that's a burden the child can't bear. Children are not idols, nor possessions. For parenting is not self-fulfilment, but self-giving, self-sacrifice. And if you want to see it, say hello to our brother, Nat Musket, who's here. With his wife, Chloe Jane, yes, you, woo. And they're, yeah, why not? And they're two kids. Nat, where are you? Are you here? Yes, Nat. Is that true, brother? Sacrifice? Yes, thumbs up. Sleep? Sacrificed. <laughs> Time? Sacrificed. Money? Sacrificed. All right, we'll stop there. Again and again and again. And again, and again, and again, and again. In addition to giving oneself to the spouse, but secondary to the primary relationship with the spouse. Children will feel most secure when the bond between husband and wife is strong. The first purpose of marriage is children for God, I've put to you tonight. But only a husband and wife are one flesh. And so the children are most secure, not when they are the focus of their parents, the sole focus, but when the bond between husband and wife is strong. Now, of course, that can be pushed too far in cases of neglect. But in true other person-centred love, not when the child is the focus, but when the marriage 
is strong. And to illustrate this, we're going to consider that great Australian kids show, actually dubious in some places, but that's controversial, can't go there, Bluey. Now, I know you guys probably didn't grow up on Bluey. You're, if you are, what are you doing here? You're probably... <laughs> <laughs> but many of us know it from siblings or other friends, but if not, it's an Aussie kids show. Episodes go for about five minutes. You could catch a few tonight at supper. It's a show about a family of dogs. Season one, episode two is called The Pool. And it ends with Bluey, who's the child, a daughter there, blue cattle dog, underwater, swimming, which you can see there, underwater, gazing up at her parents floating together near to kiss. And just as they meet, it goes back to Bluey and it zooms in slowly and and then it goes to credits and I'm, no, I'm not quite pouring it all out, but <laughs> heart full. This might be more your cup of tea. In the child, the parents are given a task. That might make the parents sound like the Mandalorian from Star Wars. In the child, they have a task. They now live for the ongoing life of this little one. But to what end? You might ask that of this series. To what end or for what purpose? <laughs> Is it to become good members of society? Whatever that looks like in a dark world. Is it education or employment like an economic unit? Or is it some other achievement in the arts or sports or research? What do your parents want most for you? If I love my son for how well he defends in soccer or plays guitar, or if I love my daughter because she hits a good forehand in tennis or plays violin, my love is flimsy, subject to change. Because what happens when others play better soccer or tennis or guitar or violin? No, but if my love is grounded in an unconditional love, and here's the kicker, irrespective of their achievement, no matter how much they achieve, no matter how they treat me like the father last night, irrespective of how they make me look in front of others, simply because they've been given me by God and my care. The child grows in a setting of acceptance and love that's needed to be then capable of adult commitment and love. Ephesians 6 verse 4. I'm not sure if you got this far from Ephesians 5:21 submitting to one another Ephesians 6 verse 4 Fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord instruction of the risen Lord Jesus 
just as it was for Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, that was a bit of a flyby one, wasn't it? But Deuteronomy 6, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, thank you. <laughs> Deuteronomy, the fifth book. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all, his commandment, all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Do you notice in verse 24 that it's a good word? God's word is good and for their good, his dearly loved and saved people. Do you remember the first purpose of marriage? I put to you, children for God, to know him and love him and serve him. That brings us to a greater purpose for our children, more than whatever this means, good members of society, but members of Christ. We've still got some way to go tonight, friends, and it is a heavy one, so let's have a stretch break. Not a leave up, get up and walk, unless you need the bathroom, but a stretch break. Fellas, use the stage if you need, and let's do some stretching. All right, I think we've stretched sufficiently. We're going to keep going. And we're at point number four. Point number four, church. John chapter one, verse nine. John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not by not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God in the case of us Gentiles non-Jews adopted children we heard last night Ephesians 1 verse 5 sharing in every spiritual blessing of the father all that I have is yours he said last night the father to his son but children how how are we children 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 1. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to spend a little time in 1 Peter chapter 1. Firstly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? How are we children? Verse 3, born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Called out of, his, called out of darkness into his marvellous light. Chapter 2, verse 9. All by God's mercy. And so, born of God, we are born to love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That gospel message of the risen Lord Jesus we heard in Jesus weeks chapter 4 verse 7 I can't turn my page I don't want to lick my finger <laughs> chapter 4 verse 7 the end of all things is at hand Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice, it's not just love one another, it's love one another deeply or earnestly, chapter 1 and chapter 4, above all else. This is truly what you were born for, brothers and sisters in Christ, to love one another. Ever outward turning from yourself, outward turning for the sake of others in love. Whether in marriage, turning outwards from yourself, giving of yourself to your spouse, not self-serving, not turning inwards, but giving. Whether in parenthood, self-giving, self-sacrificial love, not self-fulfilling, or for the greater purpose beyond the biological family to that of the church family. So you're seeing it in marriage, turning outwards. Even in marriage, turning outwards to children and in family and church and our precious fellowship here with Uni Bible Group and Focus, love deeply. Do we love one another deeply from the heart? Both as men and women. Chapter 3, verse 7. Both as heirs of the grace of life. Which brings us to point number five. I said at the start... Sexual identity rules all others according to this sexular age of the world. And it's only getting louder, as you will probably know better than me. Recent news has featured trans athletes in female sport. Prime Minister Albo, during the election campaign, copped something of a backlash after saying men can't have babies. I think it was to do with actually giving birth and transgender issues or a UK politician and I believe shadow minister for women unable to define what is a woman now we'll get a second bite on this topic in December of this year at another conference NTE national training event God willing in Canberra on the topic of identity but this conference is on relationships so is there a way for us to relate together as men and women that isn't loaded with the sexualized culture that this world thinks is ultimate? Is that even possible? That is a definition of men and women coming not from biology alone, but working with God's good created order and the word of God. Now, for this task, I'm going to cite a paper by an American scholar named Patrick Schreiner, who incidentally, his brother John, I once billeted when he came to Australia for NTE as an overseas delegate. Um, so, I've, yeah, I don't know why I put that. But his father, Tom, is a New Testament scholar. <laughs> his, his brother down the bottom, John has a connection to us, he's been to Wollongong 
And actually, um, with some of the apprentices that year, we took them to Symbio Zoo. And I saw this guy, this American guy, throw a rock into the water to try and stir a crocodile. <laughs> and he's actually in a similar location to our friends in the Arabian Peninsula, Matt and Kate. Anyway, it's not about him or his dad, Patrick Schreiner. We've got some definitions coming. Masculinity and femininity. Now note the definitions might not be exhaustive, but they're relational. Masculinity is fundamentally sonship, brotherly love, and potentiality toward paternity. That is, potential to be a father. Femininity is fundamentally daughterhood, sisterly love, and potentiality toward maternity. That is, potential for motherhood. What do you notice in these relational definitions? I'm going to give you a minute or so to discuss with the person next to you. Just what do you notice? All right, let's bring it back together. Now, I encourage you to, if you like, jot it down, take a photo more um, so you can continue to dwell on it. I'm going to point out six things. Being male and female is understood fundamentally in relational terms here. That is looking outward, not inward. Secondly, male and female begins with something we don't have to realise but that we are. We are all children. Our first relationship is in utero. And then outside, the first it's as a child. But even more, we are all God's offspring. Acts 17, verse 28. So sonship, yes, to an earthly father. Daughterhood, yes, to an earthly father, mother. But also something of it to God. It doesn't depend on us realising ourselves either in becoming parents or some other accomplishment or stage. Thirdly, each category speaks in family terms, but with an application beyond biological family. For example, consider a man who fathers four different children by four different mothers, abandoning each mother and child in turn before moving on to the next woman. Is such a man a father? Yes, in one sense, he fathered four children. But no, in a deeper, more important sense. For paternity isn't just procreation, but provision and protection. Faithful, loyal love. Similarly, Consider a woman unable to have children, but with her husband, welcomes foster children into her home, pouring love and nurture into them. Is she a mother? 
in a biological sense, no. But because motherhood is nurture and self-giving, she is more truly a mother than a, neg a neglectful mother. Thus, a woman who never bears a child doesn't cease to be a woman. And neither is a womanhood diminished if she never cares for children. She has that, she maintains the capacity and freedom to live in a motherly way to others. But it's family terms with application beyond biological family. Like at my church, a lady gay, who as far as I know isn't a biological mother, but she's served children for something on 30 years. <laughs> Or one of you I spoke with last night. I was very encouraged, brother. You're at a small church with not many young adults. Actually, perhaps you're the only one. But you're starting to serve by teaching kids. Fourthly, it allows for distinctly male and female ways of love. I love my children. I'm emotional at their birth. But I haven't carried them in the womb. I haven't nourished them from my body. The bond of a mother with a child happens in a unique way. I'm not going to know. And so it makes some sense of these different ways of love. Even the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 2 of him in the church, like a caring mother and like a father's discipline. So typically, the woman engages with the world more inwardly, while the man typically more externally. Women are more prone to the personal, while men to the task, with neither being better nor worse. So perhaps, and I might overspeak, I might want to pull back these words, but yeah, the girls or yeah, the boys... Now, I'm old. No doubt there are sinful connotations that me as an old man is just not aware of. But at least it acknowledges a difference, doesn't it, between the girls and the boys and their relating. But if I may say... <laughs> I missed it. Oops. But if I may say a word to you, brothers. You have strength physically from God to use to serve like one of our brothers did, changing a tyre on Monday morning for one of our delegates here. Or perhaps brothers even walking down the street into danger because you're the only man and there's two sisters with you. Just some examples. Five. There's lots of similarity. Male and female are both children, siblings, and potentiality, and parents. So instead of always describing them oppositionally, they have more in common than not, just like we share more in biology than we don't. And number six, marriage isn't ultimate. Instead, the supreme command of Jesus to love holds these 
male and female masculinity femininity definitions together love both with the spirit of sonship both of us were being conformed to the image of god's son who gave up his life for us now even unbelievers know how to love luke 11 verse 13 luke 11 verse 13 you could write it down though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children but Christ-like love is to count others before yourself, to lay down your life for another. I believe it might be in a manuscript discovery. As part of, why are we laying down a life for another? Well, it's part of dying to self, laying down one's own life, which all Christian followers of Christ do. Luke 9 verse 23, deny self, take up your cross and follow Jesus. We're children because of the love of God. That overflow of his love as Father, Son and Spirit to us as children. Point number six, exhortations. Where have we come tonight? We've started in a world of darkness, confused by sex, causing an ocean of pain where sexuality subsumes all other identities. And then we went to divorce, where one or both parties turn inward to oneself instead of turning outward to serve the other, as promised. For marriage, as we saw, means self-giving, self-sacrifice. And whilst you're only one flesh with your spouse by God's good design, God's purpose for marriage, I put to you, is children. A further sacrifice beyond the married couple. Continued self-giving, continued turning outwards in other person-centred love. And should God grant children, those children are most secure, not when they, he or she is the focal point, but when the marriage is most secure. For the child isn't a possession or an idol, but a gift entrusted in raising for God to know him as father through Jesus the Son. Not to become a good member of society, it's okay, good order of society, but by God's grace alone, a member of the family of God and the church, Christ's bride, made up of male and female to love God and love one another, ever outward looking, outward looking as equal image bearers, but more as those reborn by God's word and spirit to love brothers and sisters like Christ made and conformed into his image we'll see more on loving others tomorrow we've covered lots of ground that's what we've covered but to finish some exhortations point number six a handful the first is to flee sexual immorality 1 corinthians 6 verse 18 optional to turn there 1 corinthians 6 verse 18 Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do it now. Flee doesn't mean sit and think about it. Flee. For your brothers and sisters' sake. Friends, pornography is out there. It's a scourge. And it rewires your brain, your neural pathways. So stop your pride if it's troubling you, if it's a besetting sin, and speak with a trusted Christian for Christ's honour and the gospel and even your future spouse. But if you're too proud to do that, 
you're not ready for the self-giving love that's needed for marriage. If you go into marriage for sex to serve yourself, not God and the marriage relationship, just stop. Exhortation number two. If you're dating, don't cut yourself off as a couple from brothers and sisters in Christ. I get a bit worried sometimes when I see photos of young couples cut off from their world with nothing but their love. Yes, I'm quoting from a Star Wars film. On Naboo, with nothing but our love. I know that marriage involves a leaving of father and mother and forsaking all others, but don't cut yourself off from Christian brother. Honeymoon is good and right, but don't cut yourself off even when dating. You need each other, especially if a sad event or mistreatment happens, as we opened at the start. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Let's have a look at that. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Decent subheading, instructions for the church, the household of God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. In all purity. If you're dating, that might mean being publicly private as you date. If it's just the two of you alone in a house, leave the house. Flee sexual immorality. Keep the doors open if others are in the house. So there's a potential for being interrupted and you're not led into sin. And if you do break up, and thanks brother for sharing tonight, join you're doing your future spouse a great service by your godly conduct to one another. Exhortation number three. Don't rush into marriage. Now, we've heard already, and, and we've touched on it in an interview very helpfully, there's a lot of relationships happening at the moment amongst us, and that's somewhat to be expected because of the life stage you're in. Weddings, dating, engagement. Not in that order, but yeah. <laughs> Good gifts, yes. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. But it does create a certain temperature and culture amongst us. Might even raise the temperature or urgency to date. But just remember, we've heard marriage is hard work and you'll face many worldly troubles, says Paul. It's that self-giving love again and again. Speak to a married person if you want to know. I'm sure they can be honest. And there'll be forgiveness needed. But that's for another talk this week. Exhortation number four. Let's love one another. Remember, love one another deeply from the heart. Again, it happens 
but let's work hard to turn outward. We might have a few clicks from time to time amongst our fellowship, focus or uni Bible group. We have to work hard to keep combating that, not to turn inward and what's convenient or easy, but to keep turning outward in self-giving love. And exhortation number five, remember the one who won't ever fail. You're going to get hurt. We will be hurt in relationships, friendships, in the fellowship, whether romantic or otherwise. Where we started another, you can't live with them, can't live without them. We'll get hurt and we'll inflict hurt because we're still in the flesh, still in the sinful body. So let's look together. Let's look to the one who'll never fail us and who was without sin, who became sin for us, who's able to sympathise with our every weakness, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, sent by the Father, indwelling us by his Holy Spirit, who will safely bring us home to himself, whether through death or when Christ returns. We began tonight in an ocean of pain and hurt caused by a world that's utterly confused and in darkness about sex. And we've got so much more than a mandatory online training course or consent laws, not even band-aids, not even a drop in the ocean. We have God's good word to us. It says relationships are still good despite sin and he equips us to love to turn outwards because of Christ. It's a self-giving love as you've been reborn to do, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Give yourself in self-sacrificial love, not only as equal image bearers, but as you're born for in Christ. Give yourself in self-sacrificial love, not only as equal image bearers as male and female, but as you've been reborn for in Christ. And instead of an ocean of hurt, we look forward to greater waters. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. We heard on night one, God's spoken. Will you listen? We heard on night two of God, the Father's mercy. Will you trust? In Christ, we've been born again. Will you love? And it will stand out. It will shine brighter than those yellow hoodies, brighter than that spotlight. It will shine in a world of darkness. It will shine where women feel safe amongst men. Just think about how radically different that is. Where true masculinity is that which serves others. And femininity that does the same. But more on these later this week. Let's pray. Our great God and loving and merciful Father, 
we thank you so much that in the pain of this world and the sin, we thank you so much, Father, that you've given us your good word and given us your only begotten Son. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've shown us the purpose of marriage. You've shown us the purpose of sex in marriage. You've shown us the purpose of children. You've shown us the purpose of your church, Christ's bride. You've shown us the purpose of our lives as male and female together, reborn, being conformed into Christ-likeness. And so strengthen us for self-giving love. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.